Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. A terminal illness is an illness or condition which cannot be cured and is likely to lead to a person's death. When living with dying, people are different, and what works for one person may not work for someone else. There's no right or wrong way. Today, my guest is Barbara Green, retired CPA and daily money manager who has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She will talk about her diagnosis and how living with a terminal illness has changed her lifestyle and outlook. She will also talk about the importance of support during her illness and what she will need as she faces her death. So welcome, Barbara, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. So, Barbara, I'd like to get a little bit of background first in terms of how this all began for you. So let's start from the beginning. When did you learn you had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? July 9th, 2022. Okay. And tell us a little bit more about that. Did you have risk factors associated with the condition? What led to this diagnosis? I have none of the risk factors for um, pancreatic cancer other than advancing age, um, but none of the others. What led to it is I woke up in the middle of the night extremely itchy, and I thought I was having an allergic reaction of some kind. So I went to the doctor, and he put some other symptoms together with, with the itchiness and did some blood work and discovered that my liver enzymes were extremely elevated and they, um, to the point where they put me in the hospital. Um, Once I got there, they did every test in the book and realized what was causing the problem. And it sounds like in terms of symptoms, the itchiness also was the only symptom that you were having. Is that correct? There were others, I mean, but they were minor. They weren't things that would have gotten me to the doctor. I'd had a headache for a couple of days, and I never get headaches. Um, things were just, there, there were a number of things that were just a little bit off. They never would have gotten me to the doctor. Um, the The itchiness was being caused by the fact that I had a blocked bile duct, and the bile was irritating my liver. Livers apparently do not like being irritated, and you will either get jaundice or itchiness if there's a problem with your liver. And I'm hearing already that you had all every diagnostic procedure in the book when you went to the hospital. And so once the diagnosis was made, were you given treatment options? What, what was kind of the next step in terms of where do we go now? You know, Cheryl, I, I don't actually remember a lot about that period. I think when you are traumatized like that, things go right over your head. You don't want to hear them, so you don't. So I, I'm really kind of fuzzy about that whole period, but I, I don't think that um, I got treatment options until I saw an oncologist later after I was discharged. So this is kind of now you've obviously heard what your diagnosis was how did you handle the knowledge of having this terminal illness? And and as part of that process, were family members present to provide support? What happened next? As you said, you were a little fuzzy about the period, but what was what was now happening to you? Well, my family and friends rallied around. I mean, they were they were phenomenal support during that period. Um, I don't. I, I mean. What happened after that was I was living with trauma for about a month, just not sleeping, not being able to deal with with what what I had been told. And it seems so unreal because the day before all this started, I was a totally healthy person. And suddenly I was a person with a terminal illness. And were you given a time frame as to how much time you had to live? I mean, uh, this is pretty traumatic. And of course... I'm assuming and have a little bit of knowledge about this particular disease that usually it's it's a short time frame but what were you told 
Well, the doctors try not to answer that question, but I was persistent in asking it. And they told me the average person with pancreatic cancer lives eight to 11 months, some less, some more. Um, 11 months was this past Friday. So I've made it past the eight to 11 months. Congratulations. And it's a, and it's a, an honor. And uh, we really appreciate you sharing, sharing your story with us. So you've gotten this time frame now. What was the next step? How did you decide what course of action to take? You often hear about people who are diagnosed with a terminal illness. They decide they're going to go and take that around-the-world trip, or they're going to write the novel that, that nobody's ever seen you before. So give us a little bit more of an overview of what went through your head and how you were going to face the rest of your life. Well, The doctors all recommended to me that I take whatever trips I wanted to take now. Fortunately, for the last 20 years, I've been traveling all around the world, and I highly recommend to everybody, regardless of age, do your travel now when you can, because you never know when something like this is going to happen. So I had been through my bucket list. I wasn't dying to go anywhere. It wasn't like I was, I had missed anything. So I wasn't really anxious to travel. I have done a couple of trips since then because one of my daughters wanted to do a particular trip and my cousin wanted me to come to visit. So I have done a bit of travel, but there's really nothing that I was like thinking I had to do. So was there any plans? Was there anything that you were in addition to traveling that you also wanted to do? um, What did you think about each morning as you got up now, knowing you had this diagnosis? Well, they told me not to be far from medical care, not to go to places where it was a rural area or somewhere where they didn't have a a good-sized hospital. Um, So there were places. I did have one trip planned that I canceled because it was several hours from medical care. And they they advised me not to do that. Other than that, I mean, in the beginning, I just sat around waiting to die because I heard some people die in three weeks or five weeks or something like that. After about a month of sitting on the floor waiting to die, I started thinking, I can't do this long term. I'm going to have to go back to my regular activities. I had actually signed up for a couple of things right before this happened, and I did those things. Um, volunteer activities. I went back to doing it and thought, okay, nobody knows they're going to be hit by a bus tomorrow. So if I promise to do something and I can't, I'll have to cancel. And so I did everything. I also wanted to zero in on now that you had this diagnosis, the medical care in the early, uh, when you were diagnosed now about a year ago, was regular medical visits beginning to be a part of your life as well, uh, new medications. Talk about more about that. What, how did that become a part of your life? Well, I started chemotherapy, so there were those medications. But other than those infusions every two weeks, I have not taken any new medications. Um, I have an oncologist now, which I never had before. And actually, I've changed a couple of times, not being happy with the care that I got at the beginning. And I'm now um, out at Inova Fairfax, where I am very happy with the care that I'm getting. Um, So that took a while to figure out what was making me so stressed by the care that I was receiving and what I needed to do about it. You mentioned um, that you did chemotherapy, which kind of, I just wanted to take a step back in terms of treatment options. For pancreatic cancer. Is chemotherapy usually the treatment of choice, uh, as it were? If I understand correctly, I had a friend who also was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer, and she had some surgery. Um, I think it was a Whipple procedure, but I'm not 100% sure. Was that an option for you as well? Initially, they told me it was. Um, I went to see a surgeon at GW and talked about it, and they wanted me to have several months of chemotherapy to shrink the tumor first and then the surgery. But as time went on, they realized that this 
cancer had metastasized. It was in other places in my body. And you cannot have the surgery if it's already started moving. So in some ways, I was very happy not to have that surgery because it's a major, major surgery that takes months to recover from. And it rearranges your entire internal organ system. But I don't qualify for that surgery because of the metastasis. And so at this point, you will continue to get chemotherapy how often? Well, I get it every two weeks, and it's referred to as chemo for life. Um, I think what happens a lot is the side effects become too much and people stop. Um, so far, I've been doing it every two weeks since since this happened. A lot of side effects? More recently, yes. I would have said no up until recently, but um, the past month or so, I've had a number of side effects which are not pleasant. I don't get the usual side effects that everybody thinks about, like loss of appetite and vomiting. And that I don't have those. I get weird side effects, like jaw pain, um, which makes it hard to eat. So it's it, it's whatever side effects you get, they affect you. You know, however they do. At least for a short term, until there's some time that elapses between one treatment and the other. Yes, it's generally on day three after treatment that that I have the bad side effects. So I've been asking you in terms of how you changed your life insofar as what you were going to do and taking on new things that might be uh, that you hadn't done before. How did you begin to think about the rest of your life? And I'm thinking the first thing may be your financial situation, your planning for a time when you wouldn't be around anymore. What did you think about? I'm, and I, I was particularly interested in the fact that you are a retired daily money manager, so you are certainly very much aware of finances and taking care of other people's finances. Tell us more about what you began to think about in terms of of legacy or leaving for your family or making sure your advanced planning. How did you handle that? Well, there were a lot of things. I thought I was totally prepared because I am a CPA and I had done all the usual documents that people do. But when I really started looking at it, I realized that I could put what's called a transfer on death deed on my property in other words, once I die, it now goes directly that day. It will go directly to my daughters because they're named as the transfer on death parties in my uh, current deed. That cost me um, some money to to have a lawyer draw that up and record it, but it now saves that from going through probate. And, it, and no one had ever mentioned that to me before. I'd never heard of it. I also did the same thing with my car. If you go on the DMV website, there's a form there that you fill out, you pay them some money and you bring the form into DMV and your car will pass, in my case, directly to my daughter who lives locally so that she's able to sell it right away if she wanted to. She, she will automatically own that car upon my death. So those were two big legal document things that I did. But I also spent a lot of time talking to my family members about my final wishes and I discovered that while I planned to be cremated, one of my daughters was very opposed to that plan. And I now am the owner of a cemetery lot because she will be alive and I will not. So I thought her her feelings trumped mine. Um, but I had no idea up until then. If I hadn't talked to her, I, I wouldn't have known. Um, so I have been doing quite a bit of discussion with my daughters and my granddaughters about the fact that this disease is going to kill me. And how has that been for you? I mean, so often people, families, even when there isn't a um, terminal illness uh, diagnosis involved, but folks tend to put that off, advanced planning. You know, I'm sure our listeners are glued to the program right now to listen to what you have to say. So if you can... Give us a little bit more advice about what to think about 
both in your capacity as a CPA and daily money manager, but also as one who has been diagnosed. What, what would you like to tell people that they need to think about as, as they may be going through or a family member be, may be going through this? What, what do they need to know? Well, obviously you want to have the legal documents in place, the usual things like a will and a or trust if you want to have that or uh, power of attorney if you're incapacitated and certainly an advanced medical directive if you um, are not able to handle your own healthcare decisions, you've got to delegate someone else. But also, most people don't want to talk about death, particularly their own. And I had problems with my own daughters, getting them to face the facts. I have been working on medical aid in dying on a legislative basis for years. So I am used to the idea of people dying. And I've worked with older adults, a lot of whom died during the time they were my clients. So I'm pretty comfortable with the topic, but most people are not, and they don't want to talk about it. And so since you were very familiar with the the process itself, did you yourself seek out any kind of uh, advice, say, from an elder law attorney, or um, would that be a good idea, again, if someone does not have the kind of background and experience that you have, that it would be worthwhile to get your your estate in order, make sure your will or your trust is up to date, would that be an important task to uh, to do? Definitely. And in my case, my attorney that I had been using was about to retire, and I realized my daughters were going to need le- legal advice. So I found a new attorney, and I um, arranged to have him review all the documents that had been done by the previous attorney. Um, and it, At the same time, I talked to him about this transfer on death idea that I had, and he agreed that that was something he could do for me. Um, My documents were all fine. He just reviewed them and said, they're fine. We'll add the transfer on death uh, deed on the condo. And the DMV one I did myself. I mean, that's, that's a pretty easy form to do yourself. And I just wanted to zero in on the bequeathing of the possessions. You said your car and your... Is there any advice that if if someone's life is a, maybe has like they own a business or they're in some kind of legal activity that now they would have to give up? Is that also something that needs to have attention, again, when passing it on to to your children or to someone else? Is that something to think about as well? Definitely, this should be a succession plan if you own a business. I fortunately had closed down my business a couple of years ago when I retired, and so I didn't have to deal with that. But anyone who has a business definitely needs legal advice on how to pass that on. In fact, that should be done well before you're planning to die. Are there any resources like on the internet that um, people can refer to? I'm familiar with five wishes, but that may, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But is there kind of like what we're talking about and right now, kind of a checklist? I mean, it sounds a little cold, but yet you're paying attention to all these things. But if people haven't gotten quite to that point, are there any resources online or on the internet that people can check out just to make sure that they've got all their bases covered? Trust me, if you have a lot of friends, they will send you these things. I got so much email with recommendations, things put out by AARP or things put out by various financial operations. And so, yes, there are such checklists and Five Wishes is included in that. I actually recommended Five Wishes to my clients over the years, but didn't use it myself because when I was put in that situation, I decided I didn't want to write it out. I wanted to talk it out. I wanted to have that discussion with my family members and let them know what my wishes were so that I could I could counter any discussion that they wanted to have. I didn't want them to see that when I wasn't able to participate in the decision making. And I wanted to ask a really personal question in terms of all of this that we're talking about right now. 
what has it been like to live with a terminal illness? What what do you think about when you get up in the morning and what your day is going to look like and what you're going to do or who you're going to see? What are your thoughts? I've had 11 months to think about it. So it's changed over the period of those months. Um, I clearly cannot do the level of activity that I did before. I just don't have the stamina. And one of the things chemotherapy has done to me is it causes fatigue, where if I wanted to go through the day, all day, I would have to lie down somewhere. And if I was going out at night, surely I have to lie down sometime in the afternoon because I can't keep going. So my life is different in that I feel like I'm living at 50%. I can do about half of what I did before. Um, Still the same things. I I still do a lot of exercise classes, which I think is important. But I just, it's it's different. It's, It's totally different because I don't have the stamina that I need. And when you're interacting with friends or family, do you feel, how do you feel? Better. I feel much better when I interact with friends and family which I think is because it takes your mind off of what's going on. I think that it's easier for me to deal with friends and family. I like having them around. My daughter, who lives in California, has come a lot more frequently. It's nice to see her. I have a daughter who lives here. I've seen her more frequently. I just, and my friends and my neighbors have been amazing to have around. So I think I try to, to interact with people as much as possible, given this stamina issue that I have. Do you feel like they react differently to you because they know that you are you are dying, you have a terminal illness? And do you sense that from your, maybe your daughters, but, but friends and how they interact with you? Yes. My, one of my daughters wrote a piece on this, actually. Um, they don't fight with me anymore. Nobody fights with me. <laughs> which is a really nice thing. Uh, I can say pretty much anything and no one fights with me. Do you feel like they kind of tiptoe around you sometimes in terms of not knowing what to say? No. Um, I think that was true at the beginning, but I have talked about this a lot to the point that sometimes they tell me I need to focus on something other than death. Um, I I talked about it because I want everybody to get comfortable with the idea. Okay. Well, this is a good point then to take a short break. In case you tuned in late, we're talking with Barbara Green. Barbara is a retired CPA and daily money manager, but she has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and that is her story that she is sharing with us today. So you're listening to WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are talking with Barbara Green, who is a retired CPA and daily money manager, but also has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And she is telling us our story today. And Barbara, you in the first half of the program, you talked a lot about diagnosis and the treatment and interaction with your friends, what life is like now. But I wanted to get more into your illness. First of all, have you tried to learn as much as possible about pancreatic cancer? I have. Um, In the beginning, that's all I did. I just read nonstop. The internet is a wonderful resource. I read everything I could possibly find. I talked to everybody. I found everybody knows somebody who's had pancreatic cancer. I talked to those people. I read books that people with pancreatic cancer had written. Uh, I did everything possible. I had no free time. I was not returning phone calls. I was just researching because 
I knew nothing about this subject, nothing. And, and really, I wasn't getting a lot of information from the medical people. So there's an organization called PANCAN that deals with pancreatic cancer. They had a lot of good information on um, this disease. People sent me endless articles. I read anything that looked like it would be worthwhile to, to increase my information about it. I just did a huge amount of research. Um, I think you have to do that. You also ha- are kind of thrown in with a doctor like they just recommend someone and you go with that person because you don't know anyone else. And then you start thinking about other possibilities of where you might get treatment that might be better than where you are. Obviously, since this is right now a terminal illness, did you think about enrolling in clinical trials? Is that going on a lot? What do you know about that? Well, people think you just enroll in clinical trials. What I found out since having this disease is they offer you options in the beginning. And I was offered two different chemotherapy options, one of which had worse side effects than the other. And they, in answer to my question of, is there a difference in efficacy? The answer was no. So clearly I chose the one with less side effects. You don't go into clinical trials until all the standard uh, treatment options are used and they're not working anymore. People don't, I, I, I suppose some people do go into clinical trials in the beginning if there are no treatment options for them, but clinical trials are things that are not proven. They're trying to get evidence of whether the, the situation works or not. So they're not going to put you into an unproven treatment if there's a proven treatment that could work for you. So it starts with chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, whatever whatever they have to offer you. And then when they run out of options, they, put, they find a clinical trial that will take someone with your characteristics. And are you in any clinical trials right now? No, I am on basically the first treatment that I was offered... 11 months ago, I was told it probably would last for six months and then not work anymore, but it continues to work. And the feeling is as long as it's working and it's shrinking the tumor, they're going to continue with the one that I'm on. It's a known quantity. They want me to just stay on it. They actually have reduced it recently, Um, but it's the same treatment as I was getting from the very start. Um, Clinical trials are out there. There are clinical trials for which I would qualify, but they won't put me in those until there are no other options. And another aspect that I was wondering about is, have you explored any services that help to provide support for a person with a terminal illness? Have you used these services? What, if so, have you used these services? What's out there right now? What would you recommend that people with a terminal illness do in terms of getting support or different kinds of services? Well, I was already involved with Compassion and Choices, um, which is an organization that deals with end-of-life care. I was already a volunteer for them and working on legislative outreach because I would like to see medical aid and dying passed in the state of Virginia. Um, So I was involved in this before. and, And Compassion and Choices not only gives you information on medical aid and dying, but they give you information on end-of-life planning, the kind of thing we were talking about earlier, the, the legal documents that you might need, the financial preparations that you have to make, and how do you talk to your family about these matters. They do a lot of webinars on, on this topic, and you can get that information from them. So I got involved with them. I got involved with Life with Cancer, which is a nonprofit organization out at Inova Fairfax, that is a wonderful organization that gives you all kinds of information on all kinds of cancer. And they provide things like free massage and free acupuncture and free Zumba classes and yoga and Tai Chi, and they have free psychotherapy. It's an amazing organization that will help you through the whole process in person and virtually. So depending on you know, what your preference is, you, you can go to a lot of classes and seminars in the course of a week. Do you have any particular websites that people could look up um, some of this information 
um, or suggest where people could find these resources? Well, if they're in Northern Virginia, it's lifewithcancer.org. Um, for that one, Compassion and Choices is also Compassion and Choices, all one word, dot org. Um, there is a similar organization to Life with Cancer that's at Virginia Hospital Center, and they have a free wig program. Um, so you can go to v- vhchealth.org and you can get a lot of free wigs. Um, this is a wig that I'm wearing right now. So it's like, it was an amazing thing to get from them. Um, PanCan has a lot of, of resources and they're PanCan.org. I, I think all of these are whatever the name is, .org. You're mentioning that our listeners may, since this is a radio program, might not know that since we're pre-recording this, um, but then it'll be broadcast that I'm seeing you with your wig. Was that quite an experience for you to start wearing a wig? You look absolutely lovely, and I just want to share that with you. But um, what was that like to start wearing a wig instead of seeing your own hair? Well, I was told that this treatment was not going to make me lose my hair. So it came as a complete surprise. And I suddenly was losing gobs of hair. That is, I don't know what it would be like for someone who was prepared, but I was unprepared. They said it wouldn't happen. And so when it did, my daughter and I went to a place out in Vienna and we looked at wigs. We tried, I tried on wigs. And by that time I had very little hair. I think you should try on wigs when you have very little hair because people who buy them when they have hair, they don't fit right afterwards. And that's why they look like wigs. Mine was being tried on a virtually bald head. Um, And then I got others from, I got this one I paid for, but I had others that I got free. And it's been really easy for me wearing a wig because I think the ones I've gotten look like normal hair. And it's kind of like putting on a hat in the morning. I, I think I don't have to get up and blow my hair dry when I get out of the shower. I just put this this thing on my head like a hat and go out. It's so easy. I actually think my, my hair is growing back now. I, I think I may continue to wear a wig. And you look lovely. And to Thank that you. point, Barbara, uh, talk more about the support that you get. Are you in a support group? Um, are you with, uh, do you on a regular basis see or talk or share stories with other people who have been diagnosed either with pancreatic cancer or another kind of terminal illness. Tell us a little bit more about that aspect of your life. Okay, there's two parts to this. I have a wonderful support system. Part of the reason for that, I think, is that starting from about a week after my diagnosis, I started sending out monthly emails to a small group in the beginning Now it's 100 plus people because they've asked to be added to my list. I tell them everything that's going on. I don't hide the bad stuff. I don't hide the good stuff. I tell them how I'm coping with this. And people have loved getting those emails. I I honestly can tell from the responses that I get that people are fascinated that I'm willing to talk about this. Some people have told me that their spouse who died of cancer never gave them as much information as I'm giving them. So I highly recommend that. I don't know why more people don't open up about what they're dealing with because people cannot come to to support you if they don't know what's going on. People know and they have been amazing in terms of giving me things that I needed and just supporting me with a container of soup that they made for their family or something. Because they know what I'm dealing with, people, just an enormous number of people have tried to help me. And I I have told this to a lot of people. People generally don't like to talk about their health situation and they don't talk about it but I do, and I highly recommend it. The other support is, yes, I am in a support group at um, Life with Cancer. There is a pancreatic support group. Um, That has been a lifesaver for me, both in terms of having people to talk to um, who are dealing with the same issues that I am, but also because a person who was in my pancreatic uh, support group who has since died she is the reason I went to Inova Fairfax. 
I did not think it made sense to change treatment facilities in midstream. I thought it would be detrimental to my care. But I was so unhappy with my previous care that she convinced me in a support group meeting and several other people backed her up that I needed to change what was so stressing me and that stress is not good for cancer patients and I needed to go elsewhere and find someone who didn't make me feel that way. In addition to uh, interacting and going to support groups and getting support from your family and, and friends and colleagues, have you kept records of what's happening to you? Uh, have you kept a journal? Are you writing all of this down? I have a journal, but it's more, um, I keep it so that when I talk to my oncologist, I will remember the horrible thing that happened 12 days ago, because once it goes away, I tend to forget about it. Um, I keep that journal. But the the big journal that I think is going to come out of all this is the monthly updates, because there's a one-pager for every month since I um, was diagnosed. And I have recently printed them all out, found them all and printed them all out and realized it's it's quite a history of what's been going on. So I'm not sure yet what I'm going to do with the packet I have, but it, something is going to be done with that. And it's something that will be available for your family. Yes. And speaking of family members, it sounds like you mentioned your daughters now several times that they have supported you and that they are aware of your final wishes because I'm assuming that at some point there will be a time when you won't be able to share that with you. So are you comfortable now with where your family members are and that they know exactly what to do when you will not be able to tell them anymore? I do. I, I they, they know exactly how I feel about this. And I've been pretty open with my oncologist as well in terms of giving him documents that he hadn't even asked for, like my advanced directive and getting him to fill out forms that indicate that I don't want unusual procedures performed on me. Um, I, I think everybody is aware of how I feel. One of my daughters, I think, had a really difficult time at the beginning more than the other one because she felt I was going to die within a matter of weeks. Um, she's calmed down. They've, they've, the other one has become more realistic about what's going to happen. I think the 11 months we've had has given everybody an opportunity to come to grips with what's going on and with what I want. And you have mentioned about your oncologist any number of times, and, and I'm assuming that you continue to see your oncologist. Are there other kinds of health professionals that you continue to work with? at this time in your life? And, and if so, who are they and what, what is the purpose of working with them? Not really. There really aren't others. Um, in the beginning, I went up to Hopkins to talk with their surgeons because I thought I was going to have surgery and that they do a lot of pancreatic surgery. So I thought going to a, a hospital that did a lot of those procedures was a good idea. Once they told me I wasn't qualified for surgery, there was no reason to have a surgeon. But I don't really have any other doctors. I haven't even seen my primary care doctor since all this started. I just see, I see the oncologist every two weeks, which for me is enough medical appointments. And I was just wondering if, again, since listeners may have different kinds of situations, do people still maybe do any kind of interaction with like social workers or physical therapists or other kinds of professionals that might help them in this journey or anything you see that you might want to share? Oh, yes. The, um, the support group that I'm in is run by a social worker and a, a registered nurse. Um, I talk with a psychotherapist who's part of Life with Cancer. I talk to her once a month. And it's strictly dealing with my reactions to treatment and, and the disease. It's not dealing with my childhood trauma or anything like that. Um, so I have the other professionals involved, but not medical doctors. Um, oh, there's, there, there are palliative care doctors in the same practice with my oncologist, and I have talked to a palliative care doctor. Is that helpful? In my case, no. I think it probably is for most people. They deal with the symptoms that you might have 
they can provide drugs if you are having a like nausea or if you were having you you know insomnia or whatever you were having they could provide drugs for it i don't do very well with most drugs so i whenever they prescribe something for me it tends to make me sick so i try to stay away from them so you talk about that you've prepared and you've done your advanced care work but talk a little bit more about your preparation for care as you become more ill? I mean, are you thinking about hospice? Do you want to be at home as the demise is, is, is coming closer? What have you shared with your family or your friends? What's going to happen next? That is a really good question, Cheryl. And I don't know the answer to it. Um, Yes, I'm, I've investigated hospice. I know which, there are a lot of different hospice agencies. I know which one I want when the time is there. You have to be within six months of death and you have to have a medical diagnosis that says you are before you qualify for hospice. I think if I declined all treatment, they might say I was eligible for hospice because I would die, uh, but I haven't declined treatment as yet. And so I don't qualify for that. I do wonder in the past couple of weeks when I've had the side effects that I had recently, it would be so helpful to have someone around to deal with it. And I can't figure out who that's going to be or how that's going to happen. I don't need to go live in assisted living. I still drive a car and go to the grocery store and cook meals. I don't need to be in an assisted living situation. It would be really nice if you could snap your fingers and just someone would appear to deal with the issues of high fevers or um, jumping out of your skin from a side effect from a drug or, or something like that. It would be really helpful. And I, that's my next project is to figure out where would you find such a person? Is there such a thing? Because that's a piece that is unclear. And people will need to think about that, including you, when the time comes. Well, I think if you have a spouse or you live with your family or, or something like that, or live with somebody, it, it would be easy. That person would just take on the caregiver role. If you live on your own and you can do that pretty much 96% of the time, but then there are these days when last week when I had a high fever, it was hard for me to even dial the phone and deal with the going around and around in the voicemail system. It was really hard for me to deal with that. That would have been very nice to just snap my fingers and have someone come and do that for me. So as you said, it's on your to-do list of figuring out. Another question that certainly comes up is your funeral. Um, Have you thought about your funeral or pre-planned your funeral in terms of what that's going to look like? Or maybe you're not going to have a funeral. What kinds of thoughts have you had in that regard? Um, not a lot. I, I feel like the funeral is for the people who are still living. And I've talked to my daughters about the idea that I, I went to this cemetery where I bought the cemetery lot and everybody was dressed in black at funerals there. And I hated it. And I said, my funeral should have, everybody can, they cannot wear black. They need to wear bright colors. And what I'd ideally like is someone playing the bagpipes and walking down to the grave and just escorting me there. Um, That's probably not going to happen, but the bright colors can happen. I think a graveside service is my preference and just have it, have it be short and be done. And, but it sounds like you want a lot of friends and family to surround and to celebrate your life. Definitely more that than, than some kind of, you know, morning party where everybody is dressed in black. I, I just hated it when I saw that. And Barbara, listening to you talk, you uh, you sound very matter-of-fact about what you've been going through the past almost year. Are you at peace at this point? And how do you feel about the prognosis of your disease? I don't, I, I don't think I can say I'm at peace. I think I'm really irritated with it. It's, it makes me angry that I didn't smoke and I didn't drink and I didn't do all these things that cause you to get diseases. And I exercised and ate plant-based diet, and I still got it. And I'm not even a person who's, 
you know, like at high risk for this disease and I still got it. Makes me angry. It's like, I don't know who I'm angry at, but. And to that point, in terms of risk factors, I'm just going to step back for a second. Was there anyone in your family who has ever had this diagnosis? No. No. In fact, we have very, I only have one grandmother who um, ever had cancer of any kind and it wasn't this one. And do you feel that because yet at this point, uh, pancreatic cancer is a terminal illness, is there anything that you would like to share with people who might get a diagnosis or, or could get a diagnosis with, uh, of pancreatic cancer or, or any kind of terminal illness? What, what do you want to say to these, these folks? If you want to have a positive outlook, and you should have a positive outlook because it seems to help with your, your whole dealing with the disease. If you want to be positive about it, you can think everybody dies. We're going to die of something. Most people in my family die of dementia or heart disease. I assume those would be my fate. I will take pancreatic cancer over dementia any day of the week. It gives you an opportunity to do what I've been doing to um, prepare for your death, to prepare your family and friends for your death. You don't just sink away into dementia and you don't have a heart attack and die suddenly where you have no opportunity to do that. So if you want to have the silver lining of pancreatic cancer, it's that you get this time. And if you use it wisely, you can get a lot of things done. You can do the Swedish death cleaning and get everything cleaned out so your heirs don't have to deal with it. And you can make sure your legal documents are correct in the way you want them. And you can talk to people and you can say the things you want to say. So I think in addition to being angry about my diagnosis, my attitude is I'm going to have to die of something. We all are. And this is better than a lot of things. And this is usually quick. You are well until you are not well, and then you die, which actually sounds pretty good to me. And to that point, I mean, you've been telling um, our listeners today about uh, journaling and, and sending out information. Are your friends prepared also for what's going to happen to you? I mean, each time you see them, is it a little bit different than maybe two or three months ago? Um, how are these interactions now? And what do you predict will be uh, kind of the future interaction as you become more ill? Well, I have friends of all ages, but the majority are my age. And anybody who's gotten to my age has some kind of a health condition themselves. And what I found I've been able to do with people who have something totally different than what I have, nothing, not a cancer or anything, but just some health condition, I am putting them in touch with people that can help them because I've come to realize how important it is to just say, okay, I can't do this but I can do that and to do it and to enjoy the time that you have left and not to freak out that you might not be able to take care of yourself because somehow or other it will all, it will all get taken care of, whether you join a village or you uh, hire some help or you move somewhere or you, your children help, somehow or other this is all going to work out. And I think I have been able to help several people who are friends of mine deal with their own different health situations by saying, look, I have pancreatic cancer and this is what I'm doing. So you could do this. And they they have come back and said, that was so helpful. I've put them in touch with people that can help them. And I think that's my my focus right now. And I and the final question, or and then I'm gonna just ask for resources again, but your thoughts about your daughters and your granddaughters. What do you think about in the fact that someday you're not going to be with them anymore? Have, have they made their peace with you and you with them? What are your thoughts in that regard? I think everybody is okay with this now. I mean, I remember when I was you know, 22, I, my grandmother was really, really old. And I'm sure I seem really, really old to my grandchildren. So it's not surprising that I might die. But I have talked to them a lot about it and they they seem okay with it. And everybody seems okay with it now. Um, 
it, it's a natural part of life. We're all going to die. So uh, yeah, I think everybody's okay. And so, and the final question, you did mention some resources before, and I just wanted to make sure that if there was any particular site or on the internet or maybe your where you go to your hospital that you, again, would like to share, particularly those folks who are listening or their families that are living with a terminal illness? Well, as I said, if you live in Northern Virginia, life with cancer which is lifewithcancer.org. Um, that's an amazing resource. I, I cannot believe all the things that they do. Um, for people in general across the country, Compassion and Choices has a lot of end-of-life resources. You go on their website and you will find um, anything about end-of-life that you want to know. Um, if you have pancreatic cancer, obviously PanCan, which is dealing only with pancreatic cancer. And I'm sure there are similar organizations for other cancers. Um, and VHC Health is another um, Northern Virginia resource that people can use, especially for the free wigs. They have a lot of free wigs. Any final comments, Barbara? No, Cheryl, I think we've we've covered it all. I, I appreciate your covering this topic because I think it can help people that we don't even know um, who will maybe share this information with someone who needs it. Okay. And I want to thank you, Barbara Green, for joining me today and sharing your story of life. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Cheryl. So to learn more about Aging Matters, I would advise our listeners to visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And at the site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio podcasts and the TV show episodes, and as I said, the programs as well as the podcasts, which are on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. To learn more about that company, you can log on to inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. 